This episode of The Journal is brought to you by KPMG. At KPMG, we make the difference. It's not just something we say, it's what we do. We work closely with clients to uncover insights that illuminate opportunity, develop bold solutions that innovate industries, and create better outcomes driven by data. Brighter insights, bolder solutions, better outcomes. It's how our people make the difference. KPMG, make the difference. Bill Campbell is a second-generation movie theater owner with a few screens in Montana and Wyoming. What's your theater going to look like this Thanksgiving weekend? What are you doing to prepare? Oh, just ordering more popcorn. We sell them in 50-pound bags, so you always want to make sure you got you know, a couple, 300 pounds more in, in, in my larger theater for the weekends. Campbell's smallest theater is exactly what you might picture when you hear the words small-town movie theater. It's a kind of cool old theater on the downtown Main Street. It was built in the 30s as a vaudeville house, so it's what I guess we call an old barn. Um, steam heat, 600 seats more than you need right now. And the small town where the theater's located, it's probably what you're picturing, too. So it's in a town of about 9,000 people, Mile City, Montana. Mile City's a very agricultural ranching town. Your main street's got many bars, cafes, challenged right now, like many, some of the businesses are closed and, and storefronts are dark. But, you know, at, at night, it's, a, it's beautiful to have your marquee lit up. Campbell says since he got into the theater business over 30 years ago, it seems like every decade has brought a new technological threat. First, it was VHS tapes, then DVDs. Now it's streaming. But he says there's a new threat to his business. And it has nothing to do with Netflix or Amazon. It's about a set of rules that date back to the era of Humphrey Bogart in the 1940s. Today on the show, how a decades-old rule helped shape the movie business and how plans to get rid of it could reshape it all over again. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Ryan Knudsen. It's Wednesday, November 27th. This new threat to small theaters has its roots far from Hollywood, in Washington, D.C., where a few years ago, Justice Department lawyers began looking over some very old antitrust rules. Their goal was to do some housekeeping, clear the cobwebs, as they put it. The Department of Justice, under the Trump administration, has decided that they are going to take a look at dozens of regulatory settlements that they suspect are antiquated or anachronistic Eric Schwartzel covers the film industry. They're trying to find ways to tell voters that they've gone through and essentially cleared all of these settlements that are no longer necessary. These antitrust rules are called settlements because they literally came out of lawsuits. Starting more than 100 years ago, the Justice Department has been suing companies to stop anti-competitive behavior. They'd sue, reach a settlement with the company, and that settlement would set out industry-specific rules designed to level the playing field. Some of the industries the DOJ took on were big monopolies, like oil and railroads. Others were a little more esoteric. I mean, some of the settlements under review are 
really random. I mean, there are even some that concern like the typewriter industry or the horseshoe industry. I don't mean, I don't know how many like horseshoe manufacturers are still worried about settlements that were passed by administrations decades ago, but there might be some. There was even like a settlement that was under review that concerned the sale of ice cream cones. Wow. Yeah, apparently, I didn't know this, but apparently there was this big price-fixing scheme involving ice cream cones. No kidding. That sounds horrifying. I know. <laughs> what I mean, are we going to do without ice cream cones? Well, I think we've gotten by. I mean, whatever settlement was in place seems to have worked. I mean, there is quite a variety of ice cream cones around these days. By the end of their review, the Justice Department had found 1,300 rules, like the ice cream cone one, that they said just didn't apply anymore and should be terminated. But along with all those rules regulating ice cream cones and typewriters and phonographs, there was at least one set of rules people do still care about. They're called the Paramount Consent Decrees. The Paramount Consent Decrees are these rules that were introduced in 1948. There was a Supreme Court case called the United States versus Paramount Pictures. And it was a landmark antitrust case that broke up what was considered a monopoly in Hollywood. That monopoly was the major Hollywood movie studios. In the 1940s, those studios had a ton of power. Yeah, like, so take a movie like Casablanca, right? Like Humphrey Bogart, Ingrid Bergman, Here's Looking at You, yada, yada, yada. I'm no good at being noble, but it doesn't take much to see that the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world came out in 1942, was produced by Warner Brothers. It starred Humphrey Bogart, who was a Warner Brothers contract player. He was under contract to make movies with Warner Brothers. And then it was released into movie theaters that were owned by Warner Brothers. So you have a vertically integrated system from the casting of movie stars to the screen that the movie is played on. So Warner Brothers basically owned the stars, the movies, and the theater. Yeah. It really is like how we've come to think of Hollywood as a factory town. There were workers who went to these studios and put out products, which were the movies. But then the means of production controlled the means of distribution. But what was the problem with that from an antitrust perspective? I mean, big isn't necessarily bad. Right. But for example... What would happen is it allowed the studios to essentially use theaters as, you know, the exclusive place to see their film, right? So if you wanted to see a Warner Brothers film, you had to go to a Warner Brothers theater. And if you didn't live near one, you might be out of luck. Mm -hmm. And if you wanted to go see a Paramount film, you had to go to the Paramount theater. Yeah. So it just meant that there was less consumer choice. Less consumer choice. And another important thing to remember, Ryan, is that movies in the 1940s were the main show. I mean, more than one in two Americans went to the movies every week. So if you were looking for, you know, a pastime, it was like there wasn't much else to do besides go to the movies. So it was also a more of a monopoly on consumers' time, too. Oh, I mean, I guess you could probably play hopscotch or stickball or something. (laughs) Read a book. (laughs) Read a book. Like a nerd. (laughs) So the studios have all this power, and then... What happened? The government sues to break it up. And in 1948, the Supreme Court rules in the government's favor. And so the agreement that emerged essentially laid the groundwork for movie distribution for more than 70 years. The Paramount Consent Decrees, as the agreement came to be known, laid out a bunch of different rules for the movie industry. Like, studios wouldn't be able to own theaters anymore. They'd have to sell them. And remember Bill Campbell, the theater owner in Montana? 
This is partly how his family got into the movie business. Way back in the 50s, his dad took over the family's biggest theater from Fox. The studio had to give it up under the new rules. And the rules also put an end to something called block booking, which is this kind of all-or-nothing deal that studios can implement. So, for example, say Columbia Pictures knows it has a big hit on its hands, a movie like His Girl Friday. From the Columbia Studios in Hollywood comes an exciting new film triumph, His Girl Friday. Great story. You'll laugh, you'll cry, featuring a big star. Cary Grant and ravishing Rosalind Russell. They might use that movie as leverage with the theaters. So they can say, hey, look, I know you really want to play this movie because it's like a guaranteed hit, but you can't play it unless you show these three duds. Duds, like another of Columbia's movies from the same decade, Babies for Sale, which you haven't heard of for a reason. Exactly, right. And so it's an all-or-nothing deal. For studios, blockbooking was a good way to distribute risk, use the hits to get more exposure and money for the duds. But once the consent decrees were put in place, studios couldn't blockbook anymore. And the rules also took aim at another strategy called circuit dealing. And that is where a studio could theoretically go to one chain in particular and say, hey, I'm going to give you the exclusive rights to show my movie. You'll be the only theaters where someone can go see this movie in exchange for more favorable terms. Those kinds of exclusive deals couldn't happen anymore under the Paramount consent decrees. One of the things that I find so interesting about stories like this, about business and regulation, is how so often regulations that can get set during one time period really have an impact on the types of business models that emerge as a result. Oh, absolutely. And that's totally the case here, because after the agreement in 1948, the U.S. theater industry started to grow. In the next few decades, the number of movie screens would explode, thanks largely to a new innovation that came about in the 60s. The innovator was Stanley Durwood, who owned a theater in Kansas City, a big 600-seater with a balcony. Same size and layout, actually, as Bill Campbell's theater in Montana. I just recently read an interview with him that was conducted many, many years later, and he had said that he was showing a movie that was pretty crappy in one auditorium, and it was, it was like, so bad that he had to close part of the theater. Durwood later told the magazine Variety that this Abbott and Costello movie was so bad, he decided to close the theater balcony so he wouldn't have to put an usher up there. He thought, well, if I could put another crappy film in the other part, I could make double the money on these two crappy movies. The multiplex was born, and then there's like this arms race through the 80s and 90s to just build as many screens under one roof as possible. And I think the record was 30. As the malls are growing in popularity, the movie theaters are being used as anchor tenants that can go in and be built up alongside the mall. The issue, though, is that the theater chains start overbuilding. And they accumulate a lot of debt. In the 90s, there was a shakeout. Theaters went bankrupt or merged. And we were left with the movie theater landscape we have today. Half of American movie screens are owned by just three companies. AMC, Regal, and Cinemark. The other half is kind of a hodgepodge of regional and mid-sized chains, plus small operators like Bill Campbell, the theater owner in Montana. 
Many of those smaller guys have had a tough time keeping up thanks to rising technology costs and increased competition from streaming. And that brings us to today and those Justice Department lawyers combing through old regulations. Last week, the department announced they'd filed a motion to get rid of the Paramount consent decrees, the rules that shaped the film industry and helped Bill Campbell build his business were about to change. Welcome back. When the Justice Department announced it was filing a motion to get rid of the Paramount consent decrees, it made the case that the movie industry had changed. These rules had been designed to end a, quote, horizontal conspiracy by the movie studios. And in the age of Netflix, HBO, and Amazon Prime, that conspiracy was over. But Eric says, even though they're nowhere near as powerful as they were in the 40s, Studios today have plenty of leverage, even with the current rules in place. The studios have gotten more powerful, especially in the past several years, because the box office has grown really top-heavy. You could call it the Avengers effect. So if you look at the top five highest-grossing movies so far this year, they're movies like Avengers Endgame and The Lion King. Those five releases alone have accounted for about 27% of the annual box office. So you've got some movies that are just too big to pass up. Explain that. Think about it. If you are a theater owner and you see a movie like Avengers on the release schedule you know you cannot pass it up. It's too lucrative. You're going to sell too many tickets. Now, what that means is that Disney can go to you and say, look, we know you want to show Avengers. So instead of giving us, you know, 55% of ticket sales like you normally do, we want 65%. Now, if you're a big chain like, say, AMC, you might have room to push back on Disney's 65%. Not so much if you're an indie going it alone. And it's not just ticket sales. For big movies like Avengers, a studio might tell a theater, you want to show our movie? You've got to run it for four whole weeks. Now, if you have a multiplex with 12 screens in it, like, who cares, right? You can run a movie for a month, no big deal. But if you're an independent operator in a small town and you have one screen, you're going to show that movie to everyone in your town in one or two weeks, right? But you're still stuck with it for an extra two weeks or so. And those are two weekends that you really aren't making any money at all. Even before the Justice Department started reviewing the Paramount consent decrees, Campbell struggled with this. Like two years ago, he had to decide whether or not to show Star Wars at his single-screen theater in Mile City. Disney required him to show the movie for four weeks. Star Wars was a four-week commitment for me. So you know that it's going to do killer business the first two weeks, and you're over Christmas, so it's, it's a nice time frame. But the next two weeks, it's just going to do nothing. Because mm-hmm, everybody in town's basically seen it by that point. Exactly. Disney says it tries to keep the booking terms consistent, no matter the theater size. But in this case, Miles City's Star Wars fans still lost out. Instead of booking Star Wars, Campbell decided to play a Will Ferrell movie called Daddy's Home that came with a shorter commitment. And these are the pressures theater owners face under the current rules. Without them, Campbell is concerned about his own theaters and others. He chairs the Independent Cinema Alliance. What worries you 
most? I would imagine block booking. Block booking. Remember, this is the idea that if you want to play His Girl Friday, you also have to show babies for sale. It's those all or nothing deals Eric described. Bill says if block booking makes a resurgence, it could quickly book up his single screen theater for his whole year. It takes up your screen space where you can't bring in movies that would do better for you and for the public's interest. And then there's that other practice Eric mentioned, circuit dealing. If the decrees are scrapped, then studios will have the option to make exclusive deals with chains like AMC and Regal to only show some films in those theaters. So circuit dealing has the potential of actually icing out a independent from any movie. If a studio were to make a deal only with one circuit to play product throughout the country, independents wouldn't be able to play that product, which is um, actually, again, detrimental to all independents and the consumer who lives in your town not being able to see that product. Because mm-hmm. if there's not an AMC theater or whatever it is in town, you're out of luck. Right. The fear is you would have to drive hundreds of miles, much like if you want to see a Broadway play. For Bill, these are worst-case scenarios. But Eric says it's not clear yet whether or how the studios will take advantage of their new freedom. You know, the studios, I talked to a couple distribution executives who told me that before the DOJ was looking into this, they had talked about potentially lobbying to get these rules repealed. But they ultimately decided, eh, it's not worth it. Hmm. And so I think no one's expecting a major sea change overnight, but they are expecting maybe more incremental changes. It might be kind of like a buy one, get one situation, right? Where you want to show this movie in June? Well, it would really help if you show this movie in April 1st. Well, so what I find striking about this story is just how much the entertainment industry is starting to look like it did in the 1940s. I mean, now you have these big streaming platforms like Netflix that are not only making their own shows, but also controlling distribution through their own studios and streaming companies. So in many ways, things kind of look like back the way they used to. Yeah, you're right that we might not necessarily have things like Warner Brother contract players, you know, where movie stars say, I'm making all my movies at this studio. But you're right that when you have Ryan Murphy or J.J. Abrams signing these mega deals with certain production companies, and then those same production companies producing movies and releasing those movies or TV shows on their own streaming platforms, they are trying to control as many steps of the process as they can. The Justice Department has said it'll keep a close eye on the industry and that it'll step in if it sees any anti-competitive or anti-consumer behavior, just like it did in the 40s. The DOJ said, quote, antitrust enforcers remain ready to act. For now, everyone's waiting to see how the movie-going landscape is going to change and what the studios might do. And no one is watching more closely than Bill Campbell. How do you think the big studios think about you, a small movie theater owner? You know, it's, it's a very good question. I mean, if you look at independence, you know, we're, depending on how you define us, but, you know, we're, we're somewhere between 17 and, and 28% of the market. So we're kind of the gravy, right? Everything that they spend, if you can make 20% off that bottom, you're doing well. And so I hope that they consider us valuable. But whether or not studios consider small theaters valuable, 
Those theaters do have a strong hold on the way a lot of Americans imagine going to the movies. What's under threat here is the most evocative image of moviegoing we have, which is like the small town Main Street USA movie theater. Because of like one thing after another, it seems in recent years, becoming more and more of an endangered species. That's all for today, Wednesday, November 27th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. I am one of your hosts, Ryan Knudsen. Your other host, Kate Leinbaugh, will be back next week. We're produced by Annie Minoff, Ricky Nevetsky, Sarah Platt, and Willa Rubin. Our senior producer is Pia Godkari. Annie Rose Strasser is our supervising producer. Griffin Tanner is our engineer. Our executive producer is Gerard Cole. Our theme music is by Haley Shaw. Additional music this week comes from Keen Collective, Blue Dot Sessions, and from Peter Leonard at Gimlet. We're off the next two days for Thanksgiving. We'll see you Monday afternoon. <laughs>